Hey, this is the Solomon Investor Show. I am your host, Blake Templeton, and this is where we focus on the wealth strategy, the world's wisest man, King Solomon, and then translate it for you, the 21st century investor, covering everything you need to know from wealth, faith, and excellence. It's time to stop trusting the public markets and look to history's first trillionaire on how to build real, lasting wealth. Look, over the past 14 years, we've applied these exact principles in more than 300 plus transactions. Not one single investor has lost money. That trillionaire was King Solomon. We'll be sharing his wisdom on how to build wealth in a way that's translated for the 21st century investor. My name is Blake Templeton, and this is the Solomon Investor Podcast. Today, we'll be unveiling what wealth really is from a macroeconomic standpoint. And then we're going to get an inside scoop from George Gammon himself on how he is actually suing the Federal Reserve. Today, my special guest is Mr. George Gammon himself. George started and operated multiple businesses in the convention and advertising space. He grew his last business to $24 million in annual revenues with 100 employees. And then after 12 years as a successful entrepreneur, George semi-retired at the age of 38 and shifted into real estate. So my man, now we're talking, shifted into real estate and he now manages a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. What George is most known for, however, though, is his macroeconomic view. He's a master of what I would call a master of macroeconomics. He loves learning it, he loves teaching it, and he breaks complicated topics down where the average person can truly understand it. Then you'll find him interviewing the world's top experts in their respective fields on his popular YouTube channel called George Gannon. So I highly recommend you guys check out George's channel. George, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. Uh, a Solomon investor. So my listeners are coming into this because they're looking for asymmetrical opportunities. That's why they're a Solomon investor. That's why they plug into Boron Capital. You know, they're wanting upside, more upside, less downside. Right. And obviously, as you know, we get these asymmetrical opportunities in our investments by having asymmetrical information. Mm. And that's obviously what most don't have. And that's why I have you on the show. I'm really interested in picking your brain. I'm really interested in um, helping our listeners gain a boiling point of conviction. The majority of times, um, we both, you and I both, we see it, that people actually get into their investments uh, by a passive flow of like no emotion. They're just kind of tossing money at something right. and they don't even know why they're doing it. There's no financial literacy. So I look forward to pulling your conviction out and seeing, uh, helping them actually drive in to realize that they have to have conviction as well. So let's start here. Uh what is the real Federal Reserve? Like, what really is the Federal Reserve? Well, the, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. It was set up in 1913, and it was there to act as the lender of last resort for the banking system. And the, the pitch was that it would smooth out the business cycle and it would prevent all these bank runs. And it would be a lot better for the economy. Uh, what we've seen since 1913 though, is a gradual uh, uh, depreciation of the dollar in terms of its purchasing power relative to goods and services. In other words, consumer price inflation. 
Now, uh, and also people point at, look at the 1930s and they say, well, you had a deflationary spat during that time, but they don't realize that although that was a depression, only the very first part of it was deflationary. If you look at the, from 34, 35, 36, we went right back to probably maybe 3% inflation, consumer price right. inflation during that time frame. Then we had a lot of inflation during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, they pegged the yield curve after World War II, uh, actually maybe even during World War II, I think. So they uh, made uh, real interest rates negative. But uh, without going down that rabbit hole, what that has done is that has really hollowed out the middle class. That is act, that's, that, that constant trying to create consumer price inflation, the goods and uh, services that you buy on a daily basis going up annually, making you basically poorer, that policy has really affected the poor and middle class negatively. And most okay, so people really don't think that through as to why I, I can yeah, explain. Yeah, it. I think you're hundred percent correct. Like no one in the middle class and even upper middle class even understands that at all. So, so why, why, why does that make them more poor? And even more than that, why um, that was the pitch of why the federal reserve was put forth. What was kind of the, the means behind why they were really doing it? You know, what was their agenda? Well, <laughs> who knows? I don't know. You can get conspiratorial and say that it was just set up by the banksters to enrich themselves. Sure. If you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, it was the earlier story that I gave you that it was set up just to act as a backstop for the banking system, uh, which would smooth out the business cycle and, and decrease the amount of boom and bust we've we would have, ironically, uh, in my opinion, they're making the boom and bust cycle uh, a lot more extreme because they're manipulating the free market capitalism. They're manipulating the price of money. And uh, the interest, I th another thing people haven't really thought through, at least the people that are comment on my videos, and I kind of use that as a, a litmus test, is an interest rate is the price of money or the price of currency, but currency is one half of every single transaction. So if you are manipulating the price of currency, you're manipulating the price of quite literally every transaction that happens with dollars in the United States and to a certain extent overseas. So there is no true price discovery. That, that can of Coke that you just purchased at the grocery store, that house you just purchased, that car you purchased, we don't really know the true price. That is a fictitious price. Sure, it's the price that you're paying. So that's the only price that you really care about. But what it would be in a free market, nobody knows. And that is incredibly important because the prices, the price signals, the information that we get from the prices being created by the free market that's what we use to create efficiencies and allocate scarce resources with alternative uses. If you don't have those prices telling you what to do, then all of those resources are going to be wasted. An extreme yeah. example of that would be communist Russia. 
That's why it collapsed in on itself. That's why they had the Ukraine, but yet they had millions of starving people because the central planners couldn't really figure out where they needed those resources to go. They would waste them. And a mm. big part of that was, was price signals. So the, the, the Fed destroys that. But going back to its very basic level, I'll give you an example that hopefully will, will hit home with everyone. Sure. So during the late 1800s, we had deflation, consumer prices going down at maybe two to 3% per year. Let's call it from 75 to 95, that 20 year period in the late 1800s. And let's just go back and assume that we had today's dollars and we've got your typical McDonald's worker. And let's also assume that they're making $1,500 per month and their expenses are about $1,500 a month. Well, fast forward 20 years. And uh, by the way, during that time frame, there was 1%, roughly 1% wage increases, nominal, and there was uh, nominal GDP growth on a per capita basis. So this person's wages go up compounded, call it 1% per year, his nominal okay. wages. So at the end of uh, 20 years, they're making roughly, let's call it $1,800. So most people would say, oh my gosh, this person is... That's terrible. They haven't gotten a raise. They're still flipping burgers or whatever it is. And they're only making an additional $300. But what they're not paying any attention to is what happened to this individual's expenses. You see, when you take two or 3% compounded, as far as the price is going down over 20 years, now all of a sudden, his or her expenses went from $1,500 a month. So they're just at a break even down to $800 a month. Well, at the same time, they went from making 1500 to 1800 So now there's a delta of $1,000 of purchasing power. Oh, by the yeah. way, that $1,000 buys you more than it did in year one because of the, the prices of the stuff that you're buying with that $1,000 going down. Uh, now, maybe assets go up. I'm just talking about consumer goods. So what the Fed did is, is they and that's what would happen in a free market economy. It makes sense. Yeah. Why? Because an entrepreneur is going out there and creating more goods and services, and they're trying to create them more efficiently because that gives them a price edge. Lowers the price. That's right. That lowers the price. So they're yeah. constantly out competing with one another, trying right. to create efficiency efficiencies and trying to be more and more productive. The more productive a society is, the richer it is by definition, and therefore you get prices going down. And what's ironic is that most of the people that are very, let's say phobic of prices going down, and they have a right to be now because our whole entire system is based on debt. Uh, right. So in a, in a normal free market, it wouldn't necessarily look like that. But in a, in a uh, now with this debt, yeah, if we have prices go down, then that could be uh, this kind of doom loop spiral that would affect demand and therefore affect negatively nominal GDP. But what's interesting is they always say, oh, well, we need prices to increase for X, Y, Z reason. That's, that's a healthy economy where prices are increasing by 2% per annum. But yet, but yet the Keynesians are all demand side, right? right? It's all about the demand side. But ironically, one of those basic laws of economics, supply and demand, is if the price of something goes down, what happens to the demand? It goes up. It goes, yeah, up. It goes up. 
If the price goes up, the demand goes down. So if you're a Keynesian and you want a lot of demand, well, you should want prices to go down. You shouldn't want prices to go up, but that's the distorted world that we live in. So that's the first thing the Fed does. And uh, they eliminate the possibility for people to just work, save money, and to get ahead. By the way, one thing I didn't mention is during that time frame, there were the interest rates you could get in a savings account uh, right about four percent. So you could put your money in a four in a four percent interest yielding savings account, and your real rate of return adjusted for inflation would be maybe six or seven percent. So sure. this does what this does is this allows people to produce more than they consume, save the difference, and take almost zero risk by yeah. just putting their money in a savings account, but yet get rich over time because 7% compounded when you're adding to that every year, that's a good number. That's a real good number after, let's say, call it 30 years. And then you can give that to your kids. You got all this purchasing power. That's how people really get wealthy as a society. And then of course, when the banks are lending prudently and they're not being bailed out, Right. And we're not creating this moral hazard, then the banks are going to lend in a way that creates even more goods and services instead of all of this consumption. But what we've done now, because of this uh, policy of constant inflation, constantly prices going up, is it creates an environment where people can't really save yeah. and, 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 and just in cash and increase their purchasing power. In fact, they'll lose purchasing power. So it yeah. builds this whole entire society where you have to become a speculator. You have to become a gambler and it pushes you further and further and further out the risk curve. Now, yeah. unfortunately, what most people do, because to your point, they really don't give this any thought. They just know that if they have $100,000, they can't just leave it in the bank. Instinctively, they know they're going to lose purchasing power. So they've got to do something. So they listen to Dave Ramsey at the very <laughs> most. You know, That's probably the, the most amount of... Uh, research they do, or they just talk to some of their buddies at the local football game, or they get the UFC pay-per-view and they ask Bob what he's doing, and Jim, what yeah. he's doing or Jane or Jill or whatever. And they all say, oh, well, I just went down to my financial planner and they told me just to do this portfolio, the 60-40 risk parity. Right. And you just, and, you know, based on your age, you kind of calculate it up or down a little bit. But if stocks go up, then you've got a hedge of bonds. And if bonds go down, then you got the hedge of stocks, blah, 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 blah. This basic risk parity. And then what the financial planner will do is they'll take charts going back to like 19, pull something out of, out of the air, 1981. And of there course, this is random because what they'll do is they'll only show you charts of the last 40 year cycle when interest chart, rates have right. gone down and they, they won't ever show. And then you if and no one is smart enough or not that they're smart enough, but they're not edu financially educated enough yeah. to ask that financial planner. Hey, can you show me a chart of what happened with this risk uh, risk parity portfolio and he prior has to 1981 when right. interest rates were on an up cycle for 30 years? What happens to the portfolio then? Right. And then what are the probabilities? Now we're obviously long in the tooth 
for the last down cycle in interest rates because it started in 81 when Volcker jacked rates up to 20%. Now we're at 0% Fed funds. So rates have gradually gone down since that time. But these cycles go back hundreds of years in the United States. And you see that interest rates, they go in these long-term cycles, call it 20 to 40 years. Right. And we're, we're extended now, almost at the, uh, well, I guess at the 40-year mark now. So at some point in time, we've got to turn and go back the other direction. Now, maybe yeah. that has already happened. We've seen the 10-year and the 30-year go up uh, to, what are we, one six, I'm guessing one seven, something like that. And uh, maybe now the, the the tide has turned, we shall see. Um, yeah. But at some point, every day that goes on, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the next cycle happening. Yeah. And with case, the risk parity, uh, the risk parity portfolio will get crushed. And I think that's the the point that is the linchpin that because of the passive ignorance you know, over their last 30, 40 years of investing, the ignorance of that, they don't even see that cliff coming. They hear of it, but it's intellectual hearing of it and not emotional hearing of it. And that's the key is you've got to have this emotional conviction, a boiling point of hatred for all of the wealth that you have worked so hard for to be stole from you. You've got to have a boiling point of hatred to actually make a extreme shift, you know, from the public market to the private market. And so I want to back up to um, take what you've just said and kind of um, summarize that on a on a lower level. So you've made a fantastic point, George, of um, essentially that free market capitalism, like how, how it should have been, that should be the constant that we're utilizing to see how far off we are, which would show how bad off their investments are, which means they need to do something about it. And the beautiful thing about that constant that you painted so so well was you didn't have to even have as much because everything was in your favor. The um, the ability for economy of scale and efficiency, technology, everything on the majority of all things being produced is on a downtrend of price right. because everyone is working together for the greater good to actually um, compete against one another to get that price down. So that meant everyone, everything that people are buying, they could buy cheaper. So you gave the analogy where the person's income didn't go up um, very much, but the expenses went down. And so guys, that's, that's how it should be. And clearly what you're seeing is everywhere is that's not the case. Your, your dollars going, uh, your, the dollar that you have in your pockets, it, doesn't count for as much as you actually had previously. And every year you have uh, the salary that you have will go the, the value of that dollar, the strength of that money buys less. That's right. And so in comes the federal reserve to solve that problem. And the more money they print, the more that dollar is devalued. So George, what's happened to the value of the dollar since it started? Well, it's gone down by what 97%, 95% as far as the value. Yeah. And they're explicitly telling you that they're trying to create inflation. They're trying to make you poor. They're, they're, they're coming right out and saying, we're trying to make you poor by a minimum of 2% per year. So yeah, I mean, how, how anyone can take that yeah. <laughs> in a good way, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I think I think what it is, it's it's that clearly 
um, it's the, it's the idea that there was no other option for them. And so, you know, for you, for those who are investing, that's the point. You've got to have a strong conviction to turn your head and question your blind spots out here that there is another way than just investing into the stock market. Let's talk a little bit about the, the zombie companies. Um, kind of tease that out with, with everything that Fed's done to back up those zombie companies. And they're now over leveraged more now than they've ever been. They've got more debt now than ever. Let's yeah. tease that out. What, how, how bad are some of the companies that are publicly traded in the, in the market? Well, I mean, when's the last time you went to a Best Buy or something? Uh, <laughs> when's the last time? I don't know if Radio Shack still exists, but they, they were really uh, on life support for a long time, complements of the low interest rates in the Fed. And corporate debt now is at an all-time high. I mean, how can that possibly be looking at, at what we've dealt with globally or in 2020? As an example, we've had businesses shut down. We've had economic activity decrease substantially. You can say, well, George, GDP's up. Right, but that's because of transfer payments from, not even transfer payments, that's from the government just sending money to everyone. But that doesn't mean that the amount of goods and services have increased. Uh, yeah, that's a point to note. Yeah, they, they've definitely decreased. So you have to start by understanding what wealth is, which very few people do. And then kind of looking at Japan. I'm writing this down here, so hopefully I don't forget. But uh, so most people think wealth is some number they have on their checking account. It's a number of currency units. And if society has more currency units on aggregate total, then somehow that society is wealthier. But what people have to understand first and foremost is that number that what you think is money is just simply a bank liability. You got so, it. So good. what you're saying is that if we have more bank liabilities, somehow as a society, we will be richer. Well, that doesn't really sound right. And then if you take it to another extreme, let's assume that you were on a deserted island and you had a chest full of a billion dollars. Sure. Well, how rich would you be? You'd be dirt poor, poor. because yeah, there's absolutely. no stuff. There, there's nothing there to buy. So this helps us understand that the Good true point. wealth in the Good society analogy. is measured by the amount of goods and services it can produce efficiently. Okay, well, then let's think about Japan. Now that we understand that, let's think about Japan. So they're at 250% debt to GDP as an example. And uh, the, the Bank of Japan owns about 60% of the JGBs, which is their right. version of the treasury. So yeah. you really only have two balance sheets involved. And you could have something called a debt jubilee, where one morning the BOJ wakes up and says, well, you know what, that call it $5 trillion worth of debt, we're just going to go ahead and hit the delete button on that. Sure. And it only affects their assets and the liability of the government. So the question becomes, would anyone know? Would, would, would the man on the street buying his donut and his coffee that morning, would he even know? And, and the answer right. is most likely they wouldn't. And therefore, is this a free lunch? But the answer to that question is absolutely no. And that brings me to my point. Because the damage has been done by the Japanese government spending the money in the first place to get up to 250% debt to GDP. 
They have distorted the economy. They have uh, manipulated it. They have created this misallocation of resources, malinvestment, you see? So it goes back to Hazlitt, right? And he teaches us not only to look at the seen, but also consider the unseen. So the question isn't, did uh, Japan get a free lunch? by trying to create all of this uh, government spending that prevented their whole entire economy from crashing back in 1990 when asset prices uh, deflated or crashed is probably a better word. But but really, you have to think through what damage did that government spending do during that whole time frame? And where would Japan be if not for that government spending? You see, and I would argue that their economy would be far stronger today if they would have allowed that uh, malinvestment to work its way out of the system back in the early 1990s, something that we did in the United States in the early 1920s. It's the depression that most people never even knew happened. And the reason most people don't even remember it and it's not really taught in the history books, is because it truly was a V-shaped recovery. The headline numbers were almost as bad, if not worse in some cases, than the Great Depression of the 1930s. But we were over and done with it in a year and a half or two years. Well, the, the government's response to those initial headline numbers was to do nothing. And in fact, they spent less money. They tightened their belt. I believe interest rates even went up instead of down very interesting. We, we dealt with some pain. Don't, don't get me wrong. There is no easy way out of this. It's just you want to take less pain now or more pain in the future That's through the just this economic malaise and these zombie corporations that you are talking about that aren't producing really any more goods and services. Therefore, they're not, they're not making the uh, society wealthier. They're just making society poorer, especially if your uh, population is increasing. I know Japan's isn't. But so that, that's really my point. And the example I like to use is of someone that's addicted to heroin, talking about the economy and how this government spending really distorts it and whatnot. And, and it, even if they're doing quantitative easing, I mean, that's a great example right there to start with before we go to the heroin addict. Remember QE, when Bernanke first mentioned it he didn't say hey guys this is qe1 he said this is yeah, qe because QE, it wasn't yeah. supposed to be a it's two a, three a, a four brand of infinity, a method right? yes and, and, but what happened is like my like my buddy shift says you go into a monetary roach motel and you can't go you can't get out it's like the monetary hotel california <laughs> you know once <laughs> you start qe you can't do QT. We tried that for a couple months and everything gang. blows up. You have the taper right. tantrum and, and uh, Powell has to reverse course. Well, it's the same thing now with these stimulus checks and the stimulus. We're building an entire economy around stimulus and government spending. And if we look at Japan as the model, we see how this plays out. Now, you know exactly how it plays out. Right. Yeah. Now, I, now we could have the instead of like a. Instead of an economic stagnation due to deflation, which Japan has had, I think we could have an economic stagnation long term recession, if you want to call it that, due to inflation. But the bottom line is it's less economic growth and society as a whole is becoming poorer and poorer and poorer as a result of that government spending that's distorting the economy. Going back to that example I was talking about with the heroin addict. 
I think this is a, a, an Ill, an, kind of an illustration everyone can easily understand. So you've got this guy addicted to drugs. You give him a credit card, let's say, of $100,000, and he runs up that credit card, maxes it out, buying more and more heroin, making his body physically more addicted to the drug, becoming unhealthier, distorting his mind in the process. And then let's say at the end of that hundred, uh, when he maxed out the card, we come in and give that individual a, a quote unquote debt jubilee, right? Is this person in where we wipe out the debt? Now they have a brand new credit card with a hundred thousand dollars. Are they any better all off? Of a sudden, right. Are they any better off? No, no because it's absolutely. not the debt. It's the, their problem. It's the fact it's they're addicted to drugs and their body's off. screwed up. Right. Yeah. And they're, so it's the exact same thing with the economy. Right now, we're giving it monetary heroin. Right. Okay, that's what the Fed has been doing. That's what the government is doing now, a stimulus. Exact same thing that Japan did, created all of those zombie companies. We're doing the same thing here by, by bailing them out, not letting them go bust and, and create this creative destruction that Schumpeter always talks about. Right. We're, we're not allowing that to happen. We're creating moral hazard which is just going to create less and less economic activity. And again, is the end game inflation or deflation? I don't know. But one thing I can tell you is the end game is society as a whole getting poorer. Yeah, and, and that's that's the key is the argument between inflation, deflation. I mean, it's a soap opera and the definitions from multiple different people are different. But the key is what's most relevant is you're getting poorer right now because of the uh, infiltration of the money from the Fed. And that's a point that, you know, everyone has to grab a hold of is like when that stimulus check comes, that's that check is that shot of heroin. When that uh, when Biden's, you know, investment money comes in, which is clearly not investment money, and it's going to a very terrible uh, economic stewardship of a country, when that money comes in, it literally is just a shot of heroin. There's no more assets. You made a fantastic point that, you know, it's about an asset bait. That's what creates wealth. The, the number in your checking account does not create wealth. So when that money goes into the savings or when, that, when you are buying the consuming goods and you're living at a higher um, position because of all the stimulus, the uh, PPP, the um, yeah. non, uh, the you know the un, the crazy unemployment numbers of what they're giving out now, you know that's the shot of heroin. And to your point on the on that heroin addict, uh, obviously as we know that drug has to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And even if you give them a brand new credit card, as you are suggesting the analogy, um, there's a point when the heroin every single you know dose has less effect. And that's what we're finding out with the US dollar is they're trying to get to that 2% inflation, as you mentioned, uh, but they're printing at such a speed that they've taken down the you know monetary money supply one chart off the Fed and it discontinued it because it's literally just a jet flying straight up. Uh, yeah. yeah, they did that for a, a few different reasons. They, they changed things around. But I mean, really, your point is the, the more stimulus we do, the, the closer it takes the economy to its eventual death, just like the drug addict doing the heroin. And uh, it's it's but, it, you know, it really starts with people understanding what wealth is. 
and yeah, very, very few people do. Such if, a strong if, point. If you know wealth was measured by the number in, in your bank account, then Venezuela would be the richest country on the planet Earth. <laughs> right. Everyone there is quite literally a trillionaire, but it, it's it's not doing them much good. You know, I'd I'd really ask people to to do an evaluation of their life right now in the United States compared to 2019, and I would assume that a lot of your listeners or viewers own assets. Maybe they own stocks. Maybe they own some Bitcoin. Maybe they own some real estate. And I would imagine that the value of their portfolio, if they held on through uh, 2020, is higher today than it was in 2019. Sure. Uh, So therefore, uh, you know, their balance sheet looks better. Uh, On paper, they're quote unquote richer. But I would would challenge everyone to, to ask themselves, are they richer? Is their life better? Or is their life worse? Do they feel richer? Are they living in a way that's richer? Let me give you an example. You know, my portfolio is is larger now. It has a, a bigger number than it did in 2019. But I can't, it takes me 45 minutes to get an Uber if I'm lucky. If I'm lucky. Try getting yeah. a reservation. I was just in West Palm. Uh, last weekend with uh, Ken McElroy and Jason Hartman. Uh, it took us, you know, Hartman tried for three hours to try to get us a reservation at any restaurant Friday night. Couldn't do it. Fortunately, I had a buddy there that, that got us in at a place. But I, I'm sure that everyone listening has had some sort of experience like this. You can't get, uh, you know, the toothbrushes are all out the other day when I went to the grocery store, just none. Like, how, how can that be? You know, these sh- supply shortages. Um, you can't, it, everything is difficult to do. There's a line, it seems, for everything. There's a wait there. Uh, you know, you call your local plumber. Oh, we can't see you for three months. We're completely backed up. And then the then you kind of get to the bottom of what's happening. And every single entrepreneur that's still in business that didn't get shut down by the government back in 2020, uh, they're like, I just can't get help. I can't get workers. I can't get it. help. Well, why is, is that? Why? The why? government yeah. is paying people to stay home. Therefore, there the producers so in society are having to compete with the government for workers. And it's only going to get worse the more stimmies and, and if we get permanent UBI, which I think may be a reality in, in, in years to come. They're talking about it Very possibly, at the state yeah. level and the city level right now. But that that so so think about that. Let's say now you're someone that enjoys going out to eat. You you used Uber periodically. Uh, you go to the doctor, and now it's taking you six months to get an appointment instead of uh, let's call it six days. Yeah, uh, you go down the laundry list, but yet yet your portfolio is bigger. Well, so what? Are you any richer? Not really, because we have because it goes back to what we're saying. Because there's fewer goods and services available. to us. Therefore, as a society, these stimulus checks have made us poorer. And that's the the message that I'm trying to drive home or last two weeks with my videos and like every single person I'm talking to. Yeah. It's so good, George, because you just, you just hit another really big pillar, which is what creates those assets, what creates the, the velocity of the money, creating these assets, buying these assets, utilizing these assets, is people. And when the Federal Reserve is giving the heroin shot to people, just like you said, the Uber driver, um, he is making four grand doing Uber part time, maybe in 
you know, Miami or Phoenix. And he's like, wait, I can get that off of these very different new sources of fed monies, you know, coming through. I can actually get that without driving and putting miles in my car, which then takes out so much, so many different opportunities for production of new assets to actually happen. Uh, Yeah. We see that in so many ways, the restaurant, the employees actually aren't there, which means they're having to buy less food because less people can come in because they can't sit people. There's half the, you know, tables are open and I'm asking the, the, the guy at Longhorn Steakhouse, I'm like, are you, are you guys still doing the COVID 50% occupancy? He's like, no, we're fully occupied. We can have everything, but we don't have the people of the staff. And obviously the staff wasn't the real problem. Now they are the problem because of the stimulus. So, yeah. And also too, you touched on the regulation and that's something that most people never think through the politicians and the economists, quite frankly, don't really think it through. They always talk about how great infrastructure is infrastructure spending as an example. And, you know, Keynes talked about animal spirits, but, uh, but what they don't talk about are how, what's the environment that would incentivize those animal spirits or, or really um, promote those animal spirits. Right. Yeah. And it's not just human beings. It's not Adam Smith's invisible hand, just people pursuing their own self-interest. It's that it's that to a point. But if you stifle the entrepreneur with more and more regulations, you're you're going to have even fewer new businesses, therefore fewer goods and services produced. So if we're trying see the, 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 the Keynesian right now would say, listen, this government spending is good because we have a big reduction because of covid lockdowns, all these things. So the government has got to come in and they've got to fill the gap. Yeah. And this is just basically a bridge loan until we can get so back to quote unquote normal. And then the loan. economy kicks back in, then animal spirits kick in. And then the entrepreneurs go back out, the businesses start creating stuff, the banks start lending again. And then we just kind of avoided, we dodged the, the economic bullet, so to speak. Right. But the problem with that is, is if that happens, but while at the same time, you have an increase in regulations, an increase in taxes, there's not going to be the same incentive structure for entrepreneurs to go out and do those things you need them to do. Because the politicians like Biden and all these guys, even Trump did this, they like to make it seem as though all of this is under their control. Like, like, oh, all we need to do is spend on a bridge somewhere and we're just going to automatically have this multiplier effect and it's going to stimulate the economy. But what they, they never tell you is they don't have any control. Sure, they, they can write a check or do something like that. But at the end of the day, the people that produce greater economic activity and therefore that multiplier effect are the individuals. It's not the politicians. Right. It's not the, the free central market. Planet. Yeah. It's the free market. It's the individuals out there that are setting up the 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 dry cleaner, that are setting up the little uh, gas station, that are setting up the used car dealership, that are setting up the construction company. The these are the people that are need to go out and take action in and order. They're being sedated by the Fed by just and the regulations and the regulations and what the government's saying is on one hand they're saying oh we're going to have all this incredible economic growth because of the stimulus, but in order to grow, we need the individuals, the producers. So what they're doing is they're saying, okay, let's do stimulus, but then let's, 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 uh, let's kneecap 
the producers by, by increasing the regulations, increasing the taxes. Yeah. So therefore, all you're going to have is spending. You're not going to have any multiplier effect whatsoever. You know, I always tell a story of, of when I was in Ecuador in 2014 and I was looking at property out there and there's a, a, a beautiful coastline in Ecuador. There's a place called Salinas, which is a little bit like their version of Miami Beach there. And uh, Guayaquil, which is the second largest city in Ecuador, is about two hour drive. Now, before it was like eight hours because all these windy roads and country roads, there wasn't a direct highway out to the coast. Well, what the government did there is they spent on infrastructure spending, something that any Keynesian would like. In fact, even uh, a Milton Friedman would might say that's that's a good idea to a certain extent because they built a highway from Guayaquil out to the coast that reduced the time down to a two hour drive. So you could transport goods much more efficiently. And you would have all these people go out there by real estate, by real estate that would create jobs. They would set up businesses around those new beachfront communities. And you have all of this economic growth. Unfortunately, what they did is they built the highway. They left it for about two years. And sure enough, you had substantial economic growth. But then what the government did is they came in and said, "Okay, well, now we've got this growth because of the highway. Now let's tax everyone to death. Let's create capital controls. Let's do all of these things that stifle foreign direct investment because we want our citizens to do it, even though their citizens don't have any capital and their citizens don't have the the knowledge to really create these types of businesses. So what happened? The foreigners take all their money out. They say, no, we're not paying the taxes. We're not paying. We're not dealing with these capital controls. Now, everything that was set up along this highway is a ghost town. Mm. There's no multiplier effect because they they de-incentivized the entrepreneur to go out there and create all these business and invest their capital, their investors. So you see, it's it's not about just the 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 spending, even if let's say the, the spending is done well, it's also that you have to create an environment that that is conducive to entrepreneurs going out there and doing their thing Very and cool. creating uh, beneficial aspects for all of society by pursuing their own self-interest. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and that leads us to this point that, you know, in, in the last years, there's been massive shifts in the Fed and they've been operating in a way that wasn't the 1913, you know, objectives and they've been breaking the law, going against their regulations over the past few years, and no one's talking about it. And that's actually what's put us in this tailspin or this, you know, destroying velocity of the U.S. dollar going into so many different pockets. So it's destroying the, you know, the opportunity for the free market to us to actually create more assets and gain that wealth. That's what's creating this devaluation of the U.S. dollar and actually stealing from the people. Um, so let's talk about this. Um, open up our minds to how the Fed's actually breaking the law and why it's so important for us to know and have conviction on. Well, how are they breaking the law? They, they, they can't buy corporate debt. The, 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 the Fed is the lender of last resort. And there's now there's a clause in there, the Federal Reserve Act, that is kind of this force majeure type thing. Where in case of emergency, then we can basically do anything we want. <laughs> okay. but, but if you if you look at the spirit of the Federal Reserve Act, 
yeah. then there is no justification whatsoever for them going out and buying uh, junk debt with totally a, a special yeah. purpose vehicle. And so that's why I, I, I took some action with, with my buddy, uh, Robert Barnes, to hopefully send a message that we, the people, are, are not going to stand for these uh, central planners feeling as though they are acting, behaving as though they are above the law. Because whether it's the Constitution or the Federal Reserve Act, that is set up to constrain these individuals that have been given a tremendous amount of power. And it's to protect us, society, the public, from them. And if we allow them, if we give them the power to get around the law, at some point in time, I can almost guarantee you, whether you like the guy or gal in office or you don't, they're going to use that power against you. That's I can so promise true. you this. And we, we have to remember that, that this country became great one of the main reasons is because we were a country of law, rule of law, not of men, you see? And we've completely lost our way. And, and, mm. and we have to get back to understanding that, 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 you know, the important part about the Constitution or the Federal Reserve Act, in my opinion, is it's a lot like free speech. You see, what, what determines free speech, if a country really, truly has free speech, it isn't if that other person or the people you don't like are, are agreeing with you. That's not a measurement of free speech. Free speech is when you can say whatever you want or you allow other people to say whatever they want, even if you disagree mm, yeah. with what they're saying. And it's, it's the exact same thing with the Constitution. It should be what it is. And, and, and the measurement of how well it's doing its job is if it's constraining people, the individuals, even if that constraint seems counterproductive, or even if that constraint is doing something that you don't like, From it your doesn't matter. Yeah. And the same thing with the Federal Reserve Act. Even if that constraint is preventing them from buying corporate debt, and everyone agrees that, okay, the Fed should come in and buy corporate debt. That's not the point. That's, That's not, the, not point. the point. The point is you can't get around the law. And if you look at the principles involved in that philosophy and you study history, it becomes blatantly apparent, apparent that I will definitely uh, sacrifice some of the, the, the short-term pain for long-term adherence and respect for the law that constrains the central planners. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, so, okay, so you're suing the Fed, and it's a it's a powerful, um, ostentatious position that is really bleeds um, American freedom. It bleeds like conviction of actually standing for something that actually matters where the majority are turning a blind eye saying, you know, it's, I'm just poor little me. I don't have a way to influence it. So I'll just become a part of it. I'll just be absorbed into the problem. Um, you're saying, no, wait, let's wake up, stand up, rise up and realize that 
One, you need assets. Two, they're stealing from you. Three, they're devaluing the dollar that you work so hard for. And um, they're putting this money in the corporate debt, which is actually giving the heroin to these zombie companies, which you've got you know, over 17 that can't even pay their own principal and interest in the actual publicly traded stock market that's touted as fantastic companies. Um, yeah. It's helping that you're, you're helping the people actually realize you've got to have conviction. You have to actually stand for something. And one way that they can stand is actually removing their money out of the public market, removing it from the publicly traded companies that are zombie companies, removing it from their bathtub of, uh, of stocks that the, uh, that the Fed is really pumping money into. It's devaluing their dollar, which is, is hurting their actual position. Um, tell us more, like, um, how are their decisions in the corporate debt? I know it might sound like we're kind of beating a dead horse, but how are their decisions harming the people? Like, what are other ways it's harming the people? How does that affect us as we go down the line? Yeah, well, we talked about them breaking the law and we haven't sued them yet. What we're doing is we're requesting information. We're assuming they're going to tell us to pound sand. And then if so, we will use the law to go after them under something called the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. So right. um, whether that's a lawsuit technically or not, most people would say it is. We're, we're basically uh, taking the law and going after them to try to extract information. It's been successfully done in the past, but we're just taking it to an extreme not to an extreme, but we're taking it to a whole new level because of what they did in 2020. And to your point, uh, almost blatantly violating the law. And we're doing that to send a message to them to stand for something to your point. So if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And then also to create more awareness of what the Fed is doing that is detrimental. Now, so we've got to compartmentalize, not, not everything they do. A lot of what they do is detrimental, but it might still be legal under the Federal Reserve Act. So I want to I don't want to um, claim that every single thing they do is illegal, um, but almost everything they do is detrimental. And it, whether that's malicious, whether their intentions are good, I, I don't know. You, you'd have to ask them. But the <laughs> bottom line is because it, it pushes people out the risk curve and it distorts the economy, it reduces the standard of living because it's reducing the amount of goods and services. And what's happened now, you see, you've got a lot of investors that I'm sure most of their um, uh, expenses are denominated in dollars. Sure. So this makes it very difficult because... You can find a lot of things overseas that are cheap. And I like to just buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive. But sure. you can only do that to a certain percentage of your portfolio because you don't want to take too much currency risk because of your cash flows or your assets are denominated, let's say in the Russian ruble, but your expenses are in dollars that if the ruble goes the wrong way, then you got problems. You got big right. problems. Um, I want to, before we close, I want to take us back to that conviction. So all of our uh, Solomon investors, they're looking to grow. They're looking to have conviction in something, to stand for something. They put that flag in the ground to say, you know what? I realize the financial literacy um, that, I, that I had a lack of, the deficiency of, and I want that. And so through this, um, this you know, again, going back to the process of, you know, beginning the and initiating suing the Fed, um, it's it's a stance that uh, positions truth in front of everyone. And so, 
I would love to, you know, I'd like to see like, what do you expect to get out of it? What do you expect the outcomes to really be? Um, what would you like to see changed in the suit by the suit? Well, ideally I'd like to send a message to the fed that they just can't run willy nilly and do whatever they want without repercussions. They, they, they've got to be more cognizant of the federal reserve act because in the future, if they try to go around it again, they realize that there's going to be people out there in the general public that are going to put their foot down and hold them accountable. Uh, that would be ideal. Now, I, if we get there, I don't know what the probabilities are, probably pretty low. <laughs> uh, I, I think that we'll be able to extract some information through FOIA because it's been done in the past. Yeah. And it, it um, does have some, it does have some viable. There's a legal uh, precedent there. Legal precedent. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. But I, um, but the main thing here is, is that that would be an objective, but the main thing is to create awareness because yeah. no, most people don't even know what the Fed does, if they've even heard of the Fed, if they've even heard of Jerome Powell. And there's no way that they've thought through the damage the Fed has done. Absolutely uh, and, not. And then see, another thing too, I had a lot of Bitcoiners, when I first announced this, I had a lot of Bitcoiners kind of attack me on, on Twitter, like they always do, which is ironic because I'm, I'm bullish on Bitcoin and I, I, I like it as a, as a speculation. Sure. Um, I don't know, but any, you know, just because I'm not maxing out my credit card buying it, they think that yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm some sort of, uh, you know, moron or something like that, or I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm going to have fun being broke or what, what's the saying? I don't know. I forgot the meme, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, these uh where, where was i going with that your your outcome and then you know how do you see the how do you see this suit the awareness how do you see that helping the people yeah that's what i was saying it's it's uh i, I they're attacking me because they said oh well you're just wasting your money you should just buy bitcoin instead and you should uh you know just buy bitcoin that solves all the problems and you're just going to waste your money and other people's money in, in a GoFundMe campaign or whatever. And I said, listen, you're, you're missing the point, man. It's yeah. about awareness. How many people out there are hopefully going to become aware of the Fed because of this suit or whatever we do, whatever you want to call it, this FOIA Act, uh, Freedom of Information Act that we uh, file against the, the Federal Reserve. And then how many people are going to go down the rabbit hole and stumble upon Bitcoin or gold as a result of first finding out about this crazy guy that's going after the Fed. What is that guy talking about the Fed? Oh, was he, he's talking about deflate, he's talking about sound money, he's talking about free market. I don't really get that. What has the Fed done? They've created inflation, 1913. Oh, well, that, that analogy that he used, with, or that example with the McDonald's worker, well, that, that really makes sense. And then maybe they Google deflationary money and Bitcoin comes up. Sure. And all of a sudden they're like, what is this Bitcoin? I've heard about it. All my buddies getting rich off of it, but I really haven't had time to look into it. What was it? Deflationary money. And they start going down that rabbit hole. And all of a sudden you've got someone that's been turned on to free market economics, understands Austrian economics, understands gold, understands money, understands Bitcoin as a result of the awareness that this has created. If I could get that type of domino effect, uh, I would, regardless of what the outcome is with the Fed, 
I would consider that a huge, huge success. Yeah, that's awesome. That's the uh, catalyst, the activation, the stimulus uh, internally in financial literacy that people need. And it's time. It's time to stand up, rise up, and actually put your head above the ground and realize the chaos that's ensuing in the public market, in the U.S. dollar, and realize that you've got to actually do something. You've got to remove your funds out of a position that is doesn't have a storeholder well, doesn't have a hedge of protection. You can't keep it in the U.S. dollar. You got to put it somewhere. You got to put it in assets. Um, going back to your analogy in the very beginning, that just your savings account having an extra zero, it's doesn't mean anything if it's not actually in assets. Yeah. Um, your, yeah you, you, people forget about this. Listen, people. If I could say one message to your viewers, it's you don't need a stimulus check. You need to stimulate your critical thinking and you need to stimulate your education and your understanding of macroeconomics and the world around you. Yeah, that's powerful. It's powerful. Um, George Gammon, everybody. George, appreciate your heart, your conviction, your uh, desire to, to actually turn the tide, to actually say, you know what, I actually have a flag in the ground and I think you should too, because that's how real wealth is built. Appreciate yeah. everything you do, my man. Look forward to talking to you soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this video. Now I just want to process with you some quality questions. So look, why do you invest where you invest? Where's your conviction? Do you have conviction now? When you see that the entire system is unhealthy, it's not free market capitalism. It's not actually without manipulation. No, it's fully manipulated. Every single thing the Fed does to kick the can down the road is devaluing the dollar. And that's your dollar. That's your money. Do you really know how bad it is? Is your head in the sand? Have you really done that 50-50-50? Worked 50 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for 50 years, and you don't really even know what your conviction is, or even if you have one. Are you passively investing? Meaning not passively investing like a passive investor, but are you passively investing with no conviction? Like, Did you just give your money to a financial advisor and just hope something good happens? Look, as a Solomon investor, it's time to take a stand. It's time to have control. It's time to actually put a flag in the ground, rise up, take action, and know that you're creating exponential wealth in a position where no matter what happens in the middle of chaos, you still create wealth. So if that is somewhere that you want to be, if you want to be an insider, know what's happening. What I want you to do is pull out your cell phone and I want you to text the word Solomon to 31996. Again, text Solomon to 31996. I want you to be in my inner circle. I want you to, I want to invite you into the asymmetric opportunities we're investing into. Because I promise you, you'll be glad you did. Be blessed. All right, listen, I got to level with you. We've all seen the bubble burst over and over again. 1929, 1987, 2008, and now 2020. The fallacy of the stock markets continue to be exposed before our very eyes. And no matter where you're at right now, no matter where you're at in the markets, it's time to take action and escape the trap. You must activate and protect your net worth. 
your net worth must cash flow, and we want to help you do that. So do this. Text the word Solomon to 31996, and you will get instant access to the step-by-step training guide every Solomon investor uses to get started. It's chock full of current wealth principles, financial facts, case studies, and the frameworks of King Solomon translated for the 21st century investor. Again, text Solomon to 31996.